uh, are on a journey this year on fighting the good fight of faith. This is lesson number 11, logs and sawdust. And it seems like we just have jumped from one thing to another. But let me tell you what we're doing. We are learning, and, and I, I think this has been evident in the scripture, but we don't always see what's evident as quickly as we'd like to. But the purpose of the church when we come together, in fact, in the book, The Essentials, that uh, some of you got over the last few weeks, there's a chapter in there, Why God's People Come to Church. And there are about five or six reasons why people come to church. But it can be summarized, uh, looking at it from another perspective this way. Churches that are growing, churches that are fulfilling the Great Commission, understand three things must take place when we come together. Now, this isn't why God's people come to church. That's another, another message, another study. But three things need to happen when we come together. Um, other things can happen, but they seem to fall under these three things. Number one, the church comes together to instruct. We come together to teach truth. We also come together not only to instruct, but to impart. We believe in the impartation of mission assignments and of spiritual gifts. And thirdly, we come together, and when everything is tied together, it's to inspire. You know, we use that word enthuse, and, and the word enthuse comes from two Greek words that literally means to be lifted up in God. When you are enthused, we are caught up in God. But let me warn you, loved ones, we have to remember this all the time. A church that only instructs all they produce is dead orthodoxy. They may be right in what they believe, but there's no life flowing out of what they believe. So it's possible to be just as straight as a gun barrel theologically and just as cold and empty on the inside. So we don't want to be a church that just instructs. We don't want to be a church that just imparts. I know that sometimes it's easy for a church to emphasize our gifts and our prophecies and our, our mission. But if you don't ground the church in instruction, and if all you do is practice impartation, then you've got people walking with gifts and supernatural utterances, but there's no stability to their life. So they have wonderful works, but the works sooner or later go astray because they're not grounded in instruction. But when we can inspire, when we can say this is what the Word of God says, and this is what the Spirit of God empowers us to do, then you have an inspiration and it produces a love, it produces a works that changes the world. Now, let me go just a little step further with that. Um, Jesus models the mission of the church beautifully. When Jesus did his teaching, we read some of his words, he was interested in the mission, the church worldwide. He would tell his disciples before he left that they were going to go into all the world, beginning in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. He is concerned about a mission. He knows that the church is worldwide. But when you also study the words of Jesus, you see that he's concerned about the present community. Who am I speaking to right now? who is ministering or being ministered to right now. He would look at them and, and it would um, 
engage his emotions. In one instance, it said that he looked on this present community and he said he, he had compassion on them and he felt sorry for them because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus had the ability to see, this is the big picture, boys. This is where we're going. But he also had the ability to look at those who were standing on the hillside in front of him and to perceive their needs. But thirdly, he also was always, always remembering his job to refine those who were closest to him. You look at some of the words of Jesus, it's worldwide. You look at some of the words of Jesus, hey, we got to help these people. We've got we've to uh, heal their sick. We've got to cast out devils. We've got to raise the dead. We've got to show them the way of the Lord. We've got to teach them the Beatitudes. We've got to teach them like he did on the Sermon on the Mount. And then sometimes some of his clearest and most dramatic teaching was geared toward the 12 or toward the 70 or sometimes toward the three. You got to think about this. Jesus, even when you consider the 12, now we know there was a group that followed him regularly. There was a group of, we don't know the, the um, regularity or the, or the um, intimacy they had to Jesus, but there were 70 that were more than the crowd. They had some kind of assignment with Jesus from time to time. Um, we also know that there was a, a group of several women, several Marys. I tell you, it's if, if you want to keep your memory sharp, just try to remember which Mary is whom, you know. Um, and, and these women traveled, and some of them uh, had monetary resources, and others were, were just disciples that followed Jesus. And we don't know the the proximity they had to him. Were they with him all the time? We don't know. But there was the 12 that was always there, or almost always. There was the three that sometimes were granted access to one setting that the others might not have access to. And you've got to realize that one of the greatest pastoral balancing acts in history is Jesus pastoring those 12 men. You had uh, Simon the Zealot, Paired with Matthew, the tax collector, those two men would have absolutely hated each other before Jesus came into their life. And that's like Jesus. Have you ever gone to, you know, to, to Bible college and then wonder why God put you with the roommate you had? <laughs> he, he's pulling a Simon Levi moment, a Simon Matthew moment. Um, uh, he'll, he'll put you with someone that will stretch you beyond your wildest wildest dreams. And that's what he did, like with Simon the Zealot and Matthew. He had two, possibly three, but we know at least two sets of brothers that were part of his disciples. Now, normally that would be very good. I would feel very comfortable serving with my brothers. We come from a common background. We'd understand each other. But sometimes you find people, now don't look at your sibling that might be here today, but sometimes you find siblings that are kind of at odds with one another. And it might not be a good thing that you're serving with your brother. You know, uh, uh, you know I, I remember a, a friend of mine in Bible college and uh, I said, well, boy, that's great. I said, you can, you've, you've come here. I guess you can room with your sister. And she said, oh, no, 
no, no, no, no. I want this to be a good experience. I'm not going to room with my sister. Well, to each his own. But then Jesus also, also realized some other dynamics. And we, don't, we know it was the will of God. We don't know the dynamics. But 11 of the 12 disciples were all from the same region. In looking at it as Americans, we might say 11 of the 12 were all Southerners, well, or all Westerners, or Midwesterners, or Northerners. They were all defined by a common region. Actually, they were Northerners. There was only one disciple that did not come from the region of everybody else, and it was Judas. You say, hmm, what does that mean? I don't know. You have to ask Jesus about it. I don't believe that there's a spiritual law that says someone from outside your zone is going to be the one that goes bad. If anybody goes bad, it'll, that'll be the one to go bad. Oh, goodness, no. We, uh, we have in a city like Columbia with, with the educational opportunities, with military opportunities, with Columbia is such a melting pot, um, you, you, you don't find that kind of division at in our city, we have such a, a wonderful, beautiful hodgepodge. It's the way life was meant to be. But Jesus had all of these things that he was navigating, all of these things he was pastoring. He was speaking to a group of men that had great diversity, but he also said this, when all is said and done, by this will all men know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another by the way you love one another. Jesus knew how to instruct. Jesus knew how to impart. But Jesus knew how to inspire as well. In the new season of The Chosen that I was talking about last week, um, there was the episode in Samaria where John and James, who were brothers, wanted to call down fire on the Samaritans. And Jesus goes into this extended teaching he says, you can't be this way. He says, you've got to set the example. You can't hate people and expect God's grace to work through you. In the opening scene, I don't want to ruin it for you, but Jesus has the other disciples working in town, working in Sychar with him. He has James and John out plowing a field by themselves. And their bitterness and their prejudice has so twisted them that they think that plowing this field is God's sign of his love for them because God knows how much they hate the Samaritans and they'd rather plow a field than have to do anything around them. And they, they end up wanting to call down fire and Jesus just lays into them. And Jesus says, says, I can't believe this. He says, you are so full of bitterness that you want to call down fire from heaven and kill these people. And, and James says, well, it sounds worse than it was when you say it like that, you know. <laughs> But the beautiful thing is that Jesus, he who begins a good work in us, will be faithful to complete it. So I want to talk about an example of us becoming a people that not only are instructed and not only receive impartation, but we are inspired to live out the thing that God is wanting us to understand during these days that are ahead is the church has been shaken through the virus and all that's happened 
societally in the last year. But God is bringing us back to balance. He's bringing us back to balance. And um, he'll deal with things like our prejudice or our bias or our uh, judgmentalism. And I really want to take judgmentalism, not because I look at the church and say, man, we've got people really wrapped up in judgmentalism. I just know of nothing that would serve as a better poster child of what I'm talking about than judgmentalism. We all struggle with it. In fact, the command to judge not is probably the most disobeyed commandment of the New Testament. But at the same time, it's probably the most misunderstood commandment of the New Testament. Let's, let's do some reading. Matthew 7, 1 through 5 in, in uh, the New American Standard Bible, my favorite version. It says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way that you judge, uh, you will be judged and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Logs and sawdust. Okay. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and look, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Let's read that from the Phillips translation. Don't criticize people and you will not be criticized. For you will be judged by the way you criticize others and the measure you give will be the measure you receive. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and fail to notice the blank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me get the speck out of your eye when there's a plank in your own? You fraud, take the plank out of your own eye first, and then you can see clearly enough to remove your brother's speck of dust. Now, I want to say this before we get into judgment. I want to clarify, this is not, I was in prayer this week and the Lord said, oh, everybody's judging. Everybody's judging. That's not what happened. But I prayed and, I, and, and God was laying some principles of behavior on me. And as I said, judgmentalism is the poster child. It's the thing that we all struggle with the most probably. Whether it's just giving an unwanted opinion or passing judgment glibly or carelessly. We've put it this way before. We have to learn uh, to make the decision whether we're going to become lifeguards or umpires. And there's a place for an umpire. An umpire doesn't have favorites or shouldn't. An umpire shouldn't call the game on the basis of who he wants to win the game. An umpire in a perfect world concerns himself or herself with nothing but the rules. But there is a higher way to live. Now you need umpires in baseball. You need umpires in different events. I, I understand that. But there are some scenarios where you need lifeguards. Now, a lifeguard is just as concerned with the rules as the umpire with this difference. He sees the rule broken and decides, I'll save them anyway. They see the rule broken and said, I'll save them anyway. 
I, uh, I, I want to tell you that there is a time you may face it this afternoon. You may face it next month. You may face it months down the road, but there's a time when you're going to have to judge. When the Bible says don't judge, it's not meaning there's never a time or a place for you to judge. Because if that was the case, it wouldn't give us guidelines for judgment. But the clear meaning of that is don't be judgmental. When you have to judge, be sure that you've made some wise decisions. Uh, and I want to give you three questions to ask. Um, you say, well, how, how, do I, how do I know if it's right for me to judge? How do I know if it's even right for me to have an opinion? Uh, I remember when I was at Southeastern, I had a job uh, called Proctor. Uh, different places call it dormitory assistant or resident assistant or whatever. But basically, you were the stoolie that lived in the dorm that had to make sure everybody was in their room by curfew and you'd write them up if they did wrong. And it, was, uh, it, was, it began as a thankless job, but basically you began to be the pastor of that hallway and you began to have a good relationship with your guys usually. And um, uh, I got called into the dean's office one day and the dean said, um, so-and-so has done this, or the assistant dean, so-and-so has done this, what do you think we ought to do about it? Well, I was, I'd just come out of synoptic gospels class, and we had talked about this passage, judge not that you be not judged. And I listened to the accusations, and I knew some things about this brother. And um, I, trying to be true to this passage of Scripture, I said, I'd, I'd rather not say. I, I don't, he said, you don't have an opinion? I said, no. He said, do you know about this stuff? And I said, I've suspected, but I don't know that that happened. I do know this and this and this happened. But he said, what do you think we should do? And I said, I don't have an opinion because I wanted to be spiritual. And he said, so, I see, he said, I see you've just come out of uh, Brother Gibson's class. And, uh, and I had, and, and uh, I, I laughed. I said, I, I just don't want to judge. He said, you've got to understand something. You can't do this job without judging. You have the right to judge. But what I need you to do is judge righteously. And that put everything in a different perspective for me. I did end up giving my opinion but I tried to do so as graciously as I could without casting judgment. So you're going to have to judge sometimes. You're going to have to judge in regard to your children or regard to work or regard to civic affairs. Somewhere along the line, you're going to be called upon to judge. And there are three questions we can ask that'll help us know if we should even be judging at all. Then the second part, we're going to talk about how we judge. Here's number one. Is this an area of responsibility assigned to me? Is me passing judgment or having an opinion, is it an area of responsibility given to me? Paul would ask the question of the disciples, why do you judge your brother? Why do you consider your brother as nothing? Because every servant answers to his own master. 
And what Paul was saying is you shouldn't be judging your brother or sister in regard to certain things because that's between them and God. It's not your choice to make. It's, it's not, you don't even have a right to have an opinion. And if you have an opinion, you don't have the right to share it. He says this, this is the way we live. In Luke chapter 6, be merciful even as your father is merciful. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not, you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. And then he goes to our offering verses. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will, it, it will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use will be measured back to you. I think that's true of our giving. But I think the context of that verse might be in regard to judgment. Now that doesn't mean it's not true. I personally think that's true in every area of life. But I think contextually what Jesus may have been saying is be careful how you judge Decide if you're going to make a mistake, make a mistake on the side of mercy because the more merciful you are, the more mercy will be given to you. Is this an area of responsibility even assigned to me? Um, number two, have I equated hearing or seeing with understanding? We that believe in the ongoing gifts of the Spirit, like discerning of spirits and words of knowledge and words of wisdom and prophetic words, we, we tend to emphasize that God wants us to hear and see. And this is especially a problem in the prophetic community. But we must understand that hearing and seeing is the easy part. Understanding what you have heard is the most difficult part. Uh, understanding what you have seen is the most difficult part. Uh, for instance, is in Acts 21, we talked about this a few weeks ago, we see the fellowship of believers arguing not about whether the prophecy of, of uh, Agabus was, was true, but what did it mean? It was about Paul being bound if he went to Jerusalem. And some of them said, this is a clear word from the Lord. Don't go to Jerusalem. Others said, this is a clear word from God. You've got to go to Jerusalem. He's showing you what's going to happen. And loved ones, I will say this. Hopefully I won't have to say this for a long, long time. But the weakness with so many of us that are in the revelatory realm where we see or we hear or God gives us words or we have prophetic insights. The, the most dangerous part of your assignment is not hearing. The most dangerous part is understanding what it means. What it means. Um, for instance, I will, well, no, I won't. I'm on the, I'm on the clock. I'm on the clock. Let's go, let's go to the third question. Am I guilty of assigning intent to the actions of others? That, that is where we, that is prime fertile ground for judging. Okay, now is it my responsibility to even have a judgment? Have I sought the Lord so that I understand what I'm seeing? But here's the third and I think the greatest danger. Am I guilty of assigning intent to the actions of others? You see, in both the book of Judges and the book of Joshua, both stories end with a great conflict 
between brothers uh, in, in both Judges and in, in Joshua. Uh, Pastor Corey did a magnificent job a few weeks ago uh, in his Shibboleth sermon. That's hard to say, but it's worth saying. Shibboleth sermon. And he talked about how we can uh, um, uh, mistakenly set up requirements that God never intended for us to set up. And we can judge people by the way they say something or the way they take a stance on something. In the book of Joshua, the same kind of things happen. Now, let me, I want to take maybe just a few minutes to, to, to explain this to you. When the children of God went into the promised land, you remember that, um, let me turn so I'm looking at the map the way you are. They left Egypt and they went and they went down and they, they did this about 40 times. And then when they came into the land, they came in from the east. They didn't come in from the west. And you remember the reason they didn't come in from the west the Bible makes it clear. The, the Philistines would have been the first enemy they faced. And the Philistines were, were the woolly boogers of that region. They would have faced their toughest enemies first. And God in his wisdom said, no, I'm going to bring them down and I'm going to bring them in from the east so that Philistia will be one of the last enemies they'll, they'll fight. They'll get some experience under their belt. Under their belt. They'll get some notches on their gun. And they came in from the east of the Jordan. When they crossed the Jordan River, they didn't go from west to east. They went from east to west. And you remember when that happened, when they were about to cross the Jordan, the tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh on the east side, you know, as they were ready to go and face Jericho, cross the river and face Jericho and Gilgal, they said, hey, Joshua, this is a good land for cows, and we got cows. Listen, let us build our homes on this side of the Jordan. And God seemed to grant permission, and Joshua said, that's fine. The only thing I require, go ahead, go ahead and set up here. Go ahead and claim your land here. But understand, you've still got to cross the river with your brothers, and you've still got to help them win their land just as they've been with you here. And Reuben and Gad and Manasseh, not, not all of Manasseh, but part of Manasseh said, okay, we'll stay on the east. We'll go west and fight. And then when the battle is over, we'll come back. And that's exactly what happened after Joshua had had his three military campaigns to conquer the promised land. Um, in the book of Joshua, they said, look, we've kept our promise. We've kept our word. We have fought in every battle. And you told us we could have that land. Now we want to go back to our land with your blessing. And Joshua says, you've kept all the rules. You've done exactly what I asked. Go with my blessing. So Reuben and Gad and some of the half tribe of Manasseh, they go over to the other side. And it's not long before something happens. Now there was some question about this because this wasn't technically the land they had been promised. But God in his grace and mercy extended the borders for them. And all of a sudden at the Jordan River, an altar appears on the east side built by Reuben and built by Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So there's an altar there and all the rest of Israel, are you all with me so far? All the rest of Israel, when they see this altar, they say, no, 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 no. We are not having this. 
God's already told us that we must worship him together and we must fight battles together. Don't you remember what Achan did? Don't you remember what happened to us every time Israel compromised or worshiped something they shouldn't worship? God, when part of us mess up, God judges all of us. And all of Israel is ready for war. They've just finished the campaign in the land. And now they say, we're going to cross this river again. And we're going to whip their heinies for building a false idol Because if God judges them, it's going to bleed over and judge us. They said, and also what happens to our young men? (coughs) What happens to our sons and our daughters when they pass by this area and they see that you are worshiping another God? You're going to defile them. You're going to want to marry our children and it's going to be disaster. So we are coming against you and we will wipe you off the face of the earth. And what happened? Gad, Reuben, the half-tribe of Manasseh, their elders are meeting with the high priest of Israel and their elders, and this is what they say. Far be it from us that we would worship anyone but the true and the living God. And they said, well, what does this idol mean? And they said, we're separated from you. We're not at the center of religious activity like you are. This is a memorial to remind you that we worship the same God you do and to remind our people that even though we're in this land in the east, our heart is with the nations in the west. They had put up this thing not as a God to worship, but as a reminder saying, we worship the true and the living God only. Far be it from us to do the thing you have suggested. And then the part of Israel that had come for war said, well, far be it from us to go to war against you. We totally misunderstood what you were doing. Now it's intensely quiet in here. So that means I've either done a very poor job of explaining this or I've done a very, very good job of explaining this. I think what we've seen in the church world the last year is a lot of people misunderstanding someone's devotion. I think we've seen a lot of people pronouncing curses on their brothers and sisters that want the same thing they want, but we have ascribed blame or intent or some evil. If you don't believe what this prophet says, God's going to judge you. If you don't believe what this church does, God's going to judge you. If you don't say what I want you to say the way I want you to say it, then you just don't understand what's going on. I've never seen a time in my lifetime where the church of Jesus Christ has fragmented in so many directions, not righteous taking a stand against evil, but simply not taking the time to understand someone's heart. And so we ascribe intent. That was never the intent. And I think God has allowed all of that to happen to teach us the lesson of Joshua 22. I remember, I won't give you much specific because I'm afraid you'll figure out what I'm talking about. 
But I remember in the fairly recent past, let me narrow it down for you. Since the presidency of Harry Truman, in, in that period of time, God showed me uh, two visions and two dreams, uh, three visions, I'm sorry, let me try it again, three dreams and a vision. God showed me something that I could tell was apparently coming under judgment because when I saw the building that it represented, there was no light coming from it. And I knew from the dream and vision that they were losing their witness, they were losing their efficacy. And I I knew what it meant. They were losing their efficacy. They were losing their place in the kingdom because there was no light coming from their building. It was darkness. And I began to pray and I said, Lord, it's clear you're bringing judgment on, on this thing. You're bringing judgment. I know it's going to come. And Lord, I want to just, I want to separate myself. I want to stand against it. And, and after me doing that for about several years, I remember in prayer when I was saying, Lord, how do I resolve that? How do I stop praying about this and say the will of the Lord be done? And I remember the Lord put this in my heart. He said, Stephen, are they in rebellion or are they in error? And I remember my first response was, it doesn't matter. The light's going out. They're losing their place. And he asked me again, it makes all the difference in the world if their light is going out because they're in sin or are they making a mistake? And again, I didn't understand what difference it made. And the Lord helped me understand that if they're in sin, then I need to commit them to the Lord and pray these things. But if they're in error, I need to pray that they will turn from their error, that their eyes will be open. Because I know what it's like to be in error. Loved ones, I'm afraid that more often than we think, denominations do it, churches do it, pastors do it, church members do it. We see someone do something, what we see is very clear, but we immediately ascribe an intent to their heart that they never intended. And they become the bad guys while we're the good guys. And God is trying to rid that from us. He's trying to rid that from us. So am I guilty of assigning intent to the actions of others? Okay, those are the three questions you asked. Let me give them to you again. If you are tempted to embrace an attitude or a judgmentalism or um, a, a, a judgment over something, ask this, is it my responsibility? Okay, um, it, it's, it, it's not your responsibility over the color that your neighbor paints their house. It's, it's, it's not your responsibility how someone else raises their children. That's not your responsibility. Okay? Number two, have, do I have insight that I don't understand yet? And especially, number three, have I called something evil that might not be evil because I assigned intent to their heart? Have I actually made someone's journey tougher because in the darkness of their situation, they're struggling to find what is right and we don't agree with their journey, so we write them off and we make pronouncements of judgment against them. It's a very serious thing to think about, loved ones. 
Here are the Christian life lessons I want to leave with you. And you say, my word, Pastor, there's six of them. Yeah, but they're, they're good and they're short. If we're going to judge, we ask those three questions, but we have to remember these things. Number one, keep your eyes healthy and protected. Keep your eyes healthy and protected. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And I'm not going to re-preach a message that I preached a half dozen times. But you remember when Jesus said, if your eye is single, we said that at the heart of that, uh, when he wasn't talking about laser, you know, laser, focused attention. When he says, if your eye is single, the idea is if your eye is unfolded like a piece of cloth that was being looked at to be purchased, you, you unfold the cloth fully so that you can see if it's whole. And Jesus says, that's the way your life has got to be. You've got to be intensely honest before the Lord. You've got to be able to live with such integrity that Jesus would say of you what he said of Nathaniel, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. You've got to keep your eyes healthy and protected. And with the battle I've had <laughs> lately, um, one of the nurses in the office said, uh, and, and I know I'm not doing it today, but um, she said, you, you need to wear your glasses all the time. And I said, my glasses don't always work. And it's very complicated, the, the corneal dystrophy. You don't see the same every day. So you can get a pair of glasses and they might work on Tuesday and not work Wednesday. And the suggestion was made, then just get some glasses with just plain glass. Because you've got to protect your eyes. Your, your eyes are very fragile. Uh, the, the, the cornea tears very easily. When you work in the yard, you know, you've got to wear goggles. You have to do this. And this is what she said. Your quality of life is going to depend on you keeping your eyes protected. And I thought, that'll preach. That'll preach. <laughs> Keep your eyes healthy and protected. That's number one. In other words, from the spiritual context, when Jesus said, keep your eyes clear. Loved ones, be sure that you're in the word. Be sure that you're in the presence of the Lord so that your life is one of integrity and you don't make faulty judgments. Here's number two. Understand there's a time for righteous judgment. Paul corrected the Corinthians. They had so many problems. Uh, you say, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have gone to that church. Well, Corinth gives us hope because in the church of Corinth, there was an abundance of spiritual gifts, an abundance of prophetic words, an abundance of healing, and an abundance of problems. That's the way most churches are. Very few of them ever get to be as perfect as you are. I mean, very few. But this is what Paul said to Corinth. He says, you're taking yourself to, to court. He says, you're watching these commercials on TV too often. And you're taking each other to court when you ought to be able to resolve it. There ought to be wise judges among you who can settle these things without you parading your dirty laundry in front of the whole community. He says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that saints will judge the world? See, don't judge. But we need to understand, we're going to judge the world. We're going to judge angels. 
Or do you not know that saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we're to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes against law, to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you? And then he goes even deeper. He says, why can't you let this be settled among spiritual people? He said, and if that's not possible, why are you not rather willing to suffer wrong and be defrauded and not treat your brothers that way? So keep your eyes healthy and protected. Understand that there's a time for righteous judgment. Here's number three. Refuse to judge if your judgment's not needed. And this is what we just talked about. Uh, we, you do not have to have an opinion. You really don't. Uh, you don't have to say what comes to your mind. Um, you don't have to accept every invitation to a fight. Okay? Refuse to judge if your judgment is not needed. And number four, <coughs> if you must judge, if, if you're in a situation where I, I think I've got to judge, do so with both grace and truth. I, I gave a, a, a talk to our staff one time about, you know, are you a black and white person? Are you a gray person? And the black and white people think the grays are all compromisers. And the gray people think the black and whites are legalists. And they both said, I don't want to work with them, you know. But what we found out is that there's a time to be black and white and there's a time to be gray. Uh, and, and it doesn't have to do, you, you, don't, you don't get gray on black and white matters and you don't get black and white on gray matters. You follow the example of Jesus. This is the way Jesus was described when he's being introduced by John. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. We tend to think because of the personality tests that we take, because of the, the people that we follow online, we tend to think that we've either got to be full of truth, no matter what it does to people, or we've got to be full of grace. We never call anybody into account. But Jesus knew how to blend perfect truth and abundant grace together at the same time. He knew there was a time. He knew that he couldn't compromise with the rich young ruler. He knew that he was asking a lot, sell everything you've got and give to the poor. And the rich man went away sorrowful. If, if Jesus had wanted to, he could have said, oh, come, 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 come on back. We'll negotiate. No, Jesus knew what was in the heart of that man. And he knew that the truth had to be presented. This power in this man's life had to be broken. And Jesus was willing to let him walk away with the hopes that on another day, he will be willing to deal with his possessiveness. But we see in John chapter 8, for instance, the woman that was clearly caught in the act of adultery. It's interesting to me that all the righteous men seem to know where to find her that day. Um, I don't understand that. 
Um, and I mean, there could have been a perfectly logical reason for it. I'm serious, but I see, I don't want to judge. <laughs> but this is what he said to the woman. He said, woman, where are they? Uh, meaning, where are your accusers? Where are those that have brought you to justice according to the law of Moses? She said, there's no one here, Lord. And Jesus said, oh, what you did wasn't that bad. I mean, you got to make a living somehow. No, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, that's mercy. And from now on, sin no more. That's truth. Okay, keep your eye healthy and protected. There's a time for righteous judgment. Refuse to judge if your judgment is not needed. And here's number five. Um, remember our rules for righteous judgment. Remember our guidelines for righteous judgment. There were, there were four or five, but I just want to focus on three real quickly. This is a sermon I preach every year or so, uh, helping my fellow believer. Uh, when you have to judge and you're going to exercise righteous judgment, number one, assume your neighbor has a problem you know nothing about. If you've got to judge, assume there's something going on you know nothing about. It might be this. It might be this. The king of Israel, when Samaria was under siege, a woman uh, that had resorted to cannibalism saw the king walking by in his royal robes, and she started shouting out to him, you don't know anything about our trouble. You don't know anything. You're, you're in there eating eating uh, the finest food the land has to offer, um, and you don't care anything about us. There you are in your crown and your royal robes. And the king of Israel reached up and ripped his royal robes, and underneath he was wearing sackcloth and ashes. What he was saying is, I'm feeling it the same way you are. I'm feeling what you're feeling. I'm going through what you're going through. I'm not eating any better than you are. And sometimes we need to learn that somebody might be wearing royal robes to try to bring order. Sometimes somebody's wearing royal robes to try to help others have confidence and faith. But we need to learn that when someone acts in a way we don't like, we need to assume that they have a problem that you and I know nothing about. Here's the second expectation or, or the, the, the second guideline, expect more of yourself than you expect of others. That's a sermon in itself, you know, but I, if I get started, I'll go down a rabbit hole and may never come up. It's just whenever you're upset that somebody's not doing what you want them to do, be sure that you make up the difference, not by criticizing them, but by you going above and beyond. And here's the one I really love. If you do make a mistake in judgment... Make sure it's a mistake on the side of mercy. You and I can mark it down. We're going to make a mistake from time to time. I'm going to be duped. I'm going to be misled. I'm going to not make a good decision. I'm going to be wrong in some of my judgment. But what I want to be sure of, as sure as I can be, if I am wrong, I always want my error to be on the side of mercy, not on the side of judgment. Um, a uh, Civil War scholar was asked why the recovery between the North and South was so bitter. And, um, um, and this can be, boy, this can be so political. I'm not trying to make a political statement. I'm just trying to make an example of what I'm talking about. 
He said, it's because the best piece of advice Abraham Lincoln gave was not followed. You know, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated um, days after the war uh, ended, uh, for, technically ended. And um, then it was followed by years of reconstruction and there was great error on both sides and, and it ended up that even though slavery was done away with, uh, prejudice flourished and we had Jim Crow laws that came into effect. There was, there was, a, there was darkness after the Civil War for 100 years or more. And, and, someone, and someone said, you know, why did that happen? And this person, this, this historian said, because the best piece of advice Abraham Lincoln gave was not followed. And what was he talking about? At the uh, surrender after Appomattox, this is what Lee, I mean what uh, uh, Grant said to his commanders, to U.S. Grant and, and his staff. He said, let them up easy, boys. Let them up easy. Now, this is not a political statement saying the North mistreated the South. This is a statement that says this. Abraham Lincoln knew the war was won. And he said, we can respond in a way that will further divide the country. Or we can act in a way that will take us a few steps closer to reconciliation. And he said, let them up easy, boys. And that didn't happen um, in, a, in a lot of ways. Some ways it did. A lot of ways it didn't. And um, I can tell that's a tense thing to say. So just strike that from your minds. But um, listen to Proverbs 19. Good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. You want to you want to say I've been done wrong. I want God to defend me. I want God to stand up for me. I, I want God to glory and give me honor. Here's how you do it: overlook an offense, overlook an offense. And here's something that another quote from my pastor: Every now and then you have to decide if it's more important to be helpful or to be right. Is it more important to be helpful or to be right? Now, here's the last thing. We're wrapping up with this. Content yourself in the Lord's presence. Now, it's going to sound like I'm shifting gears here, but I'm, I'm really not. I'm trying to tie all of this together because everything I have said at best will be just a work of the flesh if it doesn't come from the Lord's presence. I, I have found, loved ones, whether it's forgiving your spouse or forgiving your children or forgiving your parents or forgiving your pastor or pastor forgiving his church, it never works fully until the offended parties go into the presence of God. And I'll tell you this, it not only does it not work fully, you can't work up enough grace outside of the presence of God. You can't do it. You cannot work up enough grace outside of the presence of God. I want to direct your mind to Psalm 131 as we conclude. And we're going to end in prayer here in just a moment. The psalmist said, O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. He says, Lord, there are some things I don't understand. There are some things I can't wrap my head around. And, and guys, you and I will always face things like that. 
And sometimes it will be the actions of others. Sometimes we want to forgive, but we find ourselves saying, how could they do that to me? Uh, I, I'll forgive, but I'll never forget. And the longer I live, the more I believe that the overwhelming majority of Christian grace revolves around our ability to forgive. And I have found that almost exclusively our ability to forgive revolves around our ability to stay in the Lord's presence. What's the rest of the psalm say? He's, he says, there's stuff I can't understand. There's stuff I can't wrap my head around. Lord, I can't look up too high. In other words, that's, that belongs to the heavenlies. I can't understand it. I can't occupy myself that are too tough for me to figure out. <coughs> so what does he say? So I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth forevermore. Do you know that in Scripture it doesn't, I've I've never heard of like weaned child academy. I've I've never heard of of a no nursing seminar. Never heard of it. But I want you to know, even though it's not the highest level of Christian life, It marks one of the first and most important improvements in our life. Here it is. When you are able to leave mama's breast and then take on a new role in the family. You say, I don't think I understand. When a child was weaned, now it didn't happen the day he drank his first glass of milk on his own. It wasn't that day. But he had to be thoroughly weaned from needing mom's nourishment at her breast. Now there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong. In fact, the Bible says when we come to Jesus, we ought to have a sincere hunger for the word where we just want to stay in mama's embrace all the time and, and desire milk. But there comes a time, and there are several indicators. When you have to part the whiskers to get the nipple in, it's a pretty good sign you've outgrown the breast. When a child was weaned, you know, Samuel stayed with his mother until he was weaned. Moses stayed with his mom until he was weaned. But weaning was such an important rite of passage. This is what it meant. If you were a little girl, it meant that you no longer would suckle at your mother's breast, but you began the process of learning to be a woman of the house. You stayed with mama, but your job was different. When you were a little boy that was weaned, as soon as you were really fully weaned, you began to go with daddy to learn his craft, or to work in the fields. You see, when the psalmist said, I've behaved myself like a weaned child, what he said is, Lord, I no longer have to scream and cry and demand and have my way. Let me tell you what it means. I think, I don't know if this is in your notes or my notes, but when you are weaned, you don't strive or struggle any longer. Is that in your notes? You don't strive or struggle any longer. I love holding little Maddox. Oh, she is. I don't know how 
we have done it. But for our family to produce four perfect grandchildren, I, I don't know what the odds are. I love holding her. I love playing with her. I love singing to her. But when she gets hungry, she goes from zero to 60 in 4.2 seconds. And during that time, you know, you try to say, it's okay, mama's getting the bottle, you know, grandma's fixing your bottle, and, you, and she is just looking at you, and she'll go for anything that looks like a nipple. I put my finger up, and she just nearly swallows it. She'll grab my nose and suck. She's tried my, my chin and sucked. because She's just almost out of control, and then... When the bottle finally comes, she calms down. She has to get her breath. She calms down. But when a child is weaned, he or she does not strive or struggle any longer. And secondly, they have moved from one level of relationship to another. See, a child that is not weaned has no regard. Never during the night does your child roll over, look at the clock and say, oh, it's two in the morning. Mom's so tired. I'll just, I'll just hold it till six. No. No. Move from one level of relationship to another. An older child might say, I'm hungry. An older child might say, I'm really hungry. And when are we going to eat? But that, that child manages until it's time to eat. And here's the third thing. His trust enables him to rest without the answers previously demanded. Now, now hear me, this idea of Father's presence is the most counterintuitive response in the Christian life. The most counterintuitive response when you're struggling is to go get something, to go find something, to go have something. It's counterintuitive to come into Father's presence. And, and I, I want to listen, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say something that could be offensive. I'm not trying to be, but a lot of times people will call or send a text or whatever. I'm fed up. God's not doing what I'm asking him to do. I'm, I'm just not going to serve him anymore. That's called a temper tantrum. And, and guys, I don't know if you think that somehow you're going to shame God into working on your schedule. I, 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 but I want you to understand this is important for you to understand. You don't get God to move by acting like a spoiled child. I, I, I talked to, and, and it was nobody in this church, nobody on our live stream. It was an old, old friend. That's the only reason I would use them as an example. But I, I, got, I got a call a few months ago during the height of the pandemic and they said, if, they said if, this, if, God, if this is the best God can do, I'm just not going to serve him. I'm not going to serve him. I, I am not going to be treated this way. And I said, well, I think you need one of two things. I said, this is the best advice I can offer you. I said, number one, you need to get to a good Christian counselor because I know you've been taught well. We, we attended the same church years ago. I said, I know you've been taught well. I know we had a good pastor. So you either need to get to a good Christian counselor to work through these feelings, or number two, you need to get saved. I said, you, you're not acting anything like a Christian right now. 
So you either need to, to, to get your thinking adjusted or you need to get saved. And you know, when I hung up or, or ended the, the conversation, what I realized is I'm talking Psalm 131. Lord, I don't understand this. I don't like this. Lord, I can't embrace this. So what do I do? I pout and leave or I behave as a weaned child. I know that nourishment is coming. I know that satisfaction is coming. I know the need will be met if I can just hold on a little bit longer. When I was at South I'm trying to quit. I, re I really am. I'm, I'm honestly trying to quit. But that's why Southeastern was so valuable to me. Um, I, I don't, I think that a lot of our seminaries and Christian colleges have lost this. And you don't see this much today, but Southeastern did a couple of things very well back in the old days. And I'm not saying schools don't do this, but they put, uh, they understood that for a person to mature in the Lord, it takes discipline and it takes time. And they did things like this. They said, Every morning, class started at, I think, 7.30, 7 or 7.30. And for like an hour and a half before that, the chapel was open for prayer. In every dorm, there was a room that was designated as a prayer room. And, you know, to, to make a room a prayer room instead of a dorm room, the school lost money. But they understood the importance. We need to have a place where you can go in your dorm after hours, after curfew, and you can pray. They did something else. They, they had what was called quiet time. And every night, uh, let's see, it was Monday through Thursday, I think it was. Every night from 7 to 7.30, it was quiet time. You couldn't leave campus. You couldn't come on campus. You couldn't leave your room. You had to give that 30 minutes in word, the word or the Lord, or that's what you were supposed to do. Now, it was funny because there was a traffic jam at 6.55 to get off campus. And there was a traffic jam at, at uh, 7.35 to get back on campus. But I tell you what that did for me. I tell you what it did for me. It gave me a discipline it gave me a structure for discipline. See, if I just say you need to be disciplined, that means nothing. That's like, oh, you shouldn't eat a second piece of pie. Well, why not? It's right here in front of me. I mean, some things you have to have a gift of the Spirit for. But it provided me a discipline. And it said, if you will develop a life of prayer, we'll help you. There's this time, this time, this time, this time. And then they said, do it. It takes time. Let me tell you about going into Father's presence. It takes discipline because it is not. You're not going to be sitting in front of the TV and then all of a sudden just feel, oh, God's calling me. I'm going to prayer. No, you'll flip channels so you find something you want to watch. You've got to find a way to discipline yourself to say no to whatever it is. You know, and loved ones, I wish I could give you, you know, uh, Holy Hubert's happy habit, hobbies, you know, but the fact of the matter is, if you want to pray in the morning, it means you probably need to get up 30 minutes earlier. 
If you want to pray at night, it means you need to turn off the computer 30 minutes earlier. We have people that say, Lord, give me discipline, give me discipline, give me discipline. And when we don't understand that discipline comes from within. So we've got to ask the Lord to help us with the discipline. And then we have got to give it some time. You say, well, what comes after I give it time? You give it some more time. Now, the good thing is after you've given it more time, the only thing you have to do is give it some more time. And then when you get past that, you'll find that if I can just give it a little more time. You see, what I'm asking God, what I've been praying for weeks for God to begin to do is to create a hunger. That's where all of this begins. Every Christian grace begins with Father's presence. And that's where all of this begins with a hunger to be in the presence of God. You say, well, what if I'm not hungry? Then eat because you need it. You know what it's like to be sick? Oh, you need to eat this. I don't have an appetite. Well, you still need to eat. Ask God to give you a hunger. And then out of that hunger grows discipline. And here's the really good news. I mean this sincerely. This is where your world changes. The desire, Lord, I know I need to spend time in your presence, but I don't have the discipline to do it. God will help you. If it's your desire, he'll give you the discipline. And then after he gives you the discipline, sooner or later, that discipline will turn to delight. It turns to delight. But loved ones, I'm, I, I see this in all of Christianity that I have any interconnected with, connectedness with at all. I see this. We have people that, yes, I know I need to pray. Yes, I want to pray. But we're not praying. We're not praying. And it's not because you're evil. It's not because you're a hypocrite. It's because hell will fight nothing in your life like prayer. So you've got to learn. Here, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. You've got to learn to discipline yourself to go to the place where Father is. And that means you're going to stay when you don't feel like staying, but they're going to be precious moments. And this is, this is I, I, I have to stop. I know that. But I want to tell you this. I, I asked, um, Shelly, are you up here? I can't see. Yeah, okay, there she is. I asked Shelly to sing a song because this has become an anthem to me. I have realized that the devil fights nothing more in me than going into Father's presence. But I have also come to understand that only as we get into his presence do we gain strength to stay in his presence. So this is what I've asked God to do. Whether you're at home watching or whether you're here today in Brown Chapel or the main sanctuary, I'm asking you to let your heart be opened to a song. And I'm asking God out of this song for seeds to begin to spring forth in your life. You see, prayer is already in you. Intimacy with the Father is already in you. It's already there. It just needs to be watered by the Spirit and begin to spring up. And this is all I'm asking you to do today. Number one, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, the ministry team will be in their usual position out this hallway. You'll get instructions in Brown Chapel. Uh, or if you need prayer for something else, they'll be out there to pray for you. But just for this song, 
I'm asking you to open your heart to the Holy Spirit. Mark down the words in your mind. Go online, get the words, put them in your journal. And, and let this begin to be a time of the latter rain. You see, the former rain, the seed has been planted and the former rain comes and starts a process. But when the latter rain comes, it even feels like it's too late when the latter rain finally comes. It even feels like the seed's been in the ground too long. But when the latter rain comes, it brings forth life. The seed that's been almost forgotten suddenly begins to spring forward in life. I'm asking God to do a supernatural work today that's beyond the explanation of man. If you're at watching live stream and you want to give your heart to Jesus or you need prayer, call in. The, the number will be on the screen. But I'm asking even at home, this is an opportunity. L loved ones, think of the opportunity we have to just... For 10 minutes, listen and say, oh, Holy Spirit, come rain in my life. Rain in my life. Lord, soften the soil of my life. You may not feel like anything, but it's beginning to rain. It's beginning to rain. God is moving in ways we're unaware of. God is moving with depth that has been hitherto unfelt by us. And in the name of Jesus, it is beginning to rain. In the name of Jesus, that fallow ground is being broken up. In the name of Jesus, books that you read in the past or prayers you prayed in the past, a forgotten experience of the past is now going to be rained upon by the Holy Spirit. Now we won't have a dismissal, but we'll have this song and I just invite you to open your heart and even after the song is over, I hope the team will continue to lead us in worship. Just say, Lord, I need something supernatural to be rained out in my life. I need the hardness of my circumstances. It's not that you're hard. It's not that you're hard. It's not that you are resistant. But we have circumstances, especially the last year, that have just so put a crust over our lives. And what we're asking for now is the latter rain, the rain that brings forth the harvest, the rain that, I'm not talking about the rain that just prepares the soil, that's the early rain. I'm talking about the latter rain that brings forth the harvest. And loved ones, all of your years of saying, Lord, I wanna pray more, all of your years of saying, Lord, I want to hear your voice, all of your years of saying, Lord, I want to please you, it's right now ready for a rain of the season. He's going to bring it forth.